You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dori Berenstein, and you are listening to Deep Dive Broadway the podcast that takes you on an immersive adventure inside the creation of Broadway shows with the visionary directors, creators, producers, and stars that bring these shows to life. I've been producing Broadway shows for over 25 years and love more than anything the show Behind the Curtain. There's nothing like it. I'm thrilled to kick off Episode 1 of Deep Dive Broadway with a look inside the creation of the 2019 Tony-winning revival of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma. Joining me today are incredible artists from the show. Please welcome Tony-nominated director Daniel Fish, Tony-nominated star Mary Testa, who stars as Aunt Eller, actor James Davis, who stars as Will Parker, Nathan Kosey, Oklahoma's music director, and the producer of the Tony-winning show, Eva Price. Let's dive in. Just to start, I want to, to quote Ben Brantley because I just... I'm obsessed with this quote. He he said, how is it that the coolest new show on Broadway in 2019 is a 1943 musical usually regarded as a very square slice of American pie? It is so far from square. It is cutting edge, beautiful, simple, but, but unbelievably impactful. Um, and so let's get a little context. So Daniel, if you could set the scene because I believe in 2006 with Joanne Acolytus, she came to you and said, I Joanne want came, you to do a show. Joanne was running the theater department at Bard College, and she said, I want you to come do something with the students here. And I said, I don't really know why I said this, but I said, I want to do Oklahoma, and I want to do it as dinner theater. And Joanne, being Joanne, said yes. So I did. And um, I think like a lot of people, I thought I knew Oklahoma. You know, that it's a show whose music been listening to since I was a kid. And um, when I started to work on it, I thought, oh, actually, I don't know this show as well as I thought I do. And I started to see um, see a show that I didn't know was there, and the story about the community and the nature of exclusion and, and justice that, that I had no idea was in the piece. And that sort of became the heart of what um, I ended up working on on and off for 12 years. And so Oklahoma in the very beginning for you was a challenge. It's a, you could have said anything, I guess. Well, I mean, there must have been some reason. I mean, you know, I sort of trust my instincts. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think it came out of nowhere. You know, I think I had probably thought about doing a production at some point and thought, well, who would let me do this? Joanne would. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but it was so long ago, I can't, I, I can't really remember what the impulses behind it were. And in, in terms of starting to shape a very different creative ver vision than the original production of many productions of Oklahoma that have been out there, could you talk us a little bit through your, how your creative vision started to take shape and, and you know, what, what from going all the way back to the Bard production uh, remains today? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's funny, somebody else asked me that recently, and, and uh, a lot of that production remains today. Um, it was uh, set in a kind of wooden room, much smaller than the wooden room that we're in now at Circle in the Square. I think there were about 100 people in it. They were all sitting at tables, and they were all sitting around, sitting around chili pots, those very same chili pots. And um, that really grew out of a conversation with the, the, design, the set designer at the time, John Conklin, and the costume designer at the time, K-Boys. Um, and uh, we were kind of talking about dinner theater, and I'm like, what is that about? What is this weird genre, dinner theater, that like, I think no other culture has? And is there something about people sitting down to a meal together and people going to see a play? That's, is there some similarity there? And I kind of just started with that question and um, got unpacked from there. And then once we started really looking at, looking at the text of it, I started to find out all these other things. And after the Bard production, <coughs> did you have the vision way back then that I am going to continue to work on this and no, one God, day? No. I mean, God, well, I mean, it, it went very well at Bard. And, and um, uh, a number of people saw it. Gideon Lester, um, who at the time was running the American Repertory Theater, in Cambridge saw it and he was interested in doing it at ART as a professional production and for a number of reasons that did not happen. Jumped to 2015, 14, um, and Gideon was now running the Fisher Center at Bard, which had a summer festival, and he said, let's do it here and let's do, a, let's really, you know, seriously do a professional production, let's have a new orchestration, let's have a great cast, and that really was a huge step forward. Um, and, and I think the real beginnings of the, the production that's currently at Circle in the Square. And so was the 2006 and 2015 production in the same space at Bar? Yes, the very same space. Oh my gosh. And, and as I, many people know, Patrick Vale, who plays Judd Fry, uh, played Judd Fry as a 20-year-old or 21-year-old senior at Bard in that, in that production. So Eva, you saw the production in 2015. And you immediately said, oh my gosh, could you talk about your reaction and what you did? Yeah, sure. Um, I had seen one production of Oklahoma previously um, <clears throat> when I was nine years old at um, a very cheesy summer stock theater in New Hampshire uh, in a barn. So I had one vision for what Oklahoma could be. Um, so when I had gotten word about this production at the Bard Summerscape, uh, I didn't believe that it was all these things that this casual friend had told me it had become because I thought, well, I know the show and I know that score really well and how could that be Oklahoma? So uh, I went to see it at, at the Bard Summerscape. Uh, I remember I had to call three different people to get a ticket because it was completely sold out because it was 200 seats at that point um, and a three-week run, I think, um, and this was near the end of it that I went. Um, and... Uh, was completely flabbergasted the uh, two hours, 45 minutes that I was in that room. I, I couldn't believe I was actually watching Oklahoma. I couldn't believe that this was the same text and the same score that I knew so well from 
being a fan of American classic musicals. Um, and for that reason, I felt that it deserved a much wider life. And I felt like I was a little bit of a maverick producer, sort of on the younger side, kind of newer. The things I was interested in doing were a little more edgy and innovative. And I thought, well, I think I'm the right person for this. Um, and I'm willing to not bring it to Broadway if that's what the world wants. If, if it's not meant to be there, that's also fine. I'll still figure out a way to get it seen by more people and more people. Um, so it was through then a series of many, many phone calls, many, many meetings. Mm, there was a chance train ride from Chicago to Milwaukee that we don't need to get into today that Ted Chapin was also on. Um, and I eventually um, was able to, to help everyone over at the Rogers and Hammerstein organization see that this production was meant for greener pastures. And that eventually led to the St. Anne's Warehouse production, which again, we did not have the rights for Broadway, but I just had faith and my gut told me that if we can get it right and make it inevitable in Brooklyn, we will make it inevitable for Broadway and more things will even be possible from that. And here we are. What extraordinary producing uh, vision. But, you know, it is so remarkable because, because I, I think the, the script is intact and the score is, you know, you're, it's quite true to the original arrangements. And, but it's so different. It's so different. It's just, you, you know, it, it reveals so much more than you even realized when you first saw the production or saw the film. And, and who knew, or maybe you did, that it would be ridiculously timely and just kind of uh, bring up subjects that are so um, important in the world we're living in today, whether or not it's bullying or gun violence. Um, I, and, you know, when you saw it, I would imagine that these issues resonated in such a huge way for you. Well, what's really interesting about that point, actually, so it was summer of 2015, Obama was still president. Hamilton had not appeared on Broadway yet, but had had its run at the public. Marriage right? equality had just passed. Marriage equality had just passed. The world was changing. There was an urgency. Gun violence was a problem that had, unfortunately, had never gone away. Um, the idea of an outsider was a thing. The idea of of a community being culpable for something and everyone being in something together was a thing. But I remember quite distinctly a year later, summer of 2016, while I was still working to get the rights to the show and get it to New York, Brexit happened. And we had, we had yet to have had our 2016 election where more things fell apart in this country. But Brexit was sort of the first instinct that outsiders and the idea of xenophobia and the idea of being afraid of th things that are different could drive political change. That, that was sort of the first moment that the world was falling apart. And I remember talking to the artistic director of the Bard Summerscape, who together we were working to further the show's life. He said, I think Brexit's good for the show. <laughs> and I said, I think, unfortunately, you're right. Um, yeah. And as we know, the world continued to change, making the show even more relevant and more impactful. And more urgent. Yeah, you know, I mean, but I think, 
I think you know one of the things about the theater is it's always about the moment that it's happening in. So I, I, I don't. I mean, I think in some ways it's fair to say that the show is, you know, like it's a, it's a sort of, you know, synchronistic combination of, of the show and, and the time. But the fact is, I think any, if we're doing our job, any any play, any show we do is is going to be about the moment that we're working in, so that we're living in. So you know, in two thousand. 15 Obama was president and with that line the country's a change and got a change with it had a kind of you know very positive you know you know resonance you know skip to now and there's we have a sociopathic moron running the country and that line means something very different as does as does mob mentality and you know everything else that comes comes out. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Mary, how, when did you get involved and what was it about um, hearing about it or you know, that just made it something that you had to do? Well, um, I had worked with Daniel, he had to remind me because I forget everything, on a reading with a mutual friend of ours, Polly Penn, of a musical. Um, we had done like a week reading or a two week reading. And um, he called me and asked me to do this. And I, I sort of had to be reminded. Um, and I just thought, oh, it sounds interesting. I, I, I'm kind of like a pinball, whatever I hit up against, I, I do. Um, so I thought, oh, this sounds interesting because we worked on around a table for a week or two weeks at New York Theater Workshop, just looking at the script. So I thought, oh, oh that's cool. So um, that's how I became involved. And, you know, you're known for your brilliant comedy, but also your serious roles. And it's such a, a perfect amalgamation of, of everything that you well, do. You know, it's, um, and I love that Ann Eller is such a fierce uh, woman that is an inspiration. Well, thank you. Everybody. That's awfully nice. But, you know, it, how did you find the truth in that character? How? What was your process? It's just finding... She can't not find the truth. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just finding truth in what you're doing and saying and relationships and my relationship with Lori and my relationship with Curly as, as, as the woman who is sort of on this farm with Lori and trying to create some sort of backstory that makes sense to me um, with all of the, oh, sorry, with all the characters. And, and that's, you know, uh, it's just, he's uh, the type of director that does not tolerate any falseness. So it's, um, you know, it was, it was uh, fairly easy to create a reality bounced off of all the other actors who are part of this as well. Jimmy has been with it from the beginning as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, um, 
it's it, it, you just you know it's like creating any character you do you yeah. you just want to be truthful you want to get the beats right you want to you want to know what you're saying where you're going and and make it all seem real and so that's kind of what we what I did yeah uh, Jimmy you mm -hmm. I, I read that you played Will Parker in high school I did and it was probably <laughs> my last musical that I did too <laughs> so I want to I want to think that that Daniel saw your production in high school and had you in mind, but what what really happened for you? Um, I remember. Do you remember what happened? I, and, uh, What's your version me. of it? I want to hear your version. Well, we did a reading together um, and uh, of a play, and then we did a week long workshop up at New York Theater Workshop of a David Foster oh, Wallace right, piece, yeah, yeah. Um, which we all sat at tables and had. Um, I forget which which book it was. It was the Pale King. The Pale so King. Chapter from the Pale King. And it was it was very experimental, and we'd sit down and we'd just read, kind of without any inflection or meaning, the lines until he pointed to somebody else and said, "You continue to read." And there were about six actors, so we did that. Um, so I knew how much he he likes things to be like on the language, which is also how I work too. Um, and then I took uh, an 11 day road trip out to LA because I thought I was going to move there. And they asked me to put myself on tape for Allie Hackham, which I thought was bizarre. <laughs> but, um, you know, I didn't know anything about this production yet. And I thought, dude, I, I just moved out here. Do I really want to go back to do a regional theater production of Oklahoma? And I was like, wait, Daniel's directing this. This is <laughs> going to be great and insane. And of course, you book something in New York when you go out to LA. So it's just a sign to get out there. And um, we did that two-week workshop at New York Theater Workshop, and I think I was, I was brought in as cast. And so they were throwing Allie Hackam stuff at me, Will Parker stuff at me, and I think by the end of the day, it was pretty much just all Will Parker stuff that I was doing. Yeah. I love that. Um, but Nathan, what was your story? Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd forgotten about the Wallace workshop. I, my, my story is sort of like that, but, but I remember, like, yeah, you sort of, my version is like you were like, oh, I want to play Will Parker. I want to play Will Parker. And I was like, really? Well, probably. I don't. I don't think you're right for Will Parker. But but you came in and then just made this it. was an internal and conversation then, you were then, having with then, yourself and in your head. And then and then you made it impossible to not play. Yeah. <laughs> I also <laughs> like knew I shouldn't tell him that I played it in high school. I was like, this will come to no good if he knows that I've already done this in high school. Nathan, you um, uh, you're the music director, but this is not your typical music director uh, opportunity. You're you are a character in the show. You're on stage the entire time. He's slim. Thank you. I am. I am. That's his, yeah, that's his name. Yeah. Aha. Uh -huh, so you yeah. have a backstory in the whole thing. <laughs> really. And he has no mic support. I'm in trying the not shows. to giggle. I'm trying to say my loud, my line loud enough. That's my that's my backstory. <laughs> Um, Nathan is pretty brilliant, I have to say. Oh, go on. I'm very no, I have to say that because I'm very I'm very impressed by you every day. I'm more impressed oh, by you. Likewise, Mary. he's pretty brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I came to this through. I worked with Daniel on a kind of a multimedia oratorio opera piece about Chelsea Manning called "The Source" that was written by a composer named Ted Hearn, and I was conducting and playing keyboards on that, which I think that's the first thing I did with Daniel, um, and that was a beautiful and austere piece involved a lot of projections and large-scale human faces and the band hidden in a behind the screen <laughs> and the next email I got from Daniel was asking me if I wanted to do Oklahoma which felt like is this the same Daniel 
is this? Are you sure? I'm not, I'm not, I don't understand your sense of humor yet. So maybe this isn't, um, but definitely came from a very kind of experimental theater and an experimental music background. Um, but had been working in some either music directing or conducting or sometimes composing um, that kind of facilitation role in theater. So I said yes, because I didn't know any better. <laughs> and, uh, and Daniel Kluger was already on. Kluger and Fish were both, I believe, already I think so. Yeah. Uh, hatching plans, and then I was kind of brought in to music direct and. And kind of I, th I mean, I, I think your job is sort of goes beyond <coughs> music direction. Yeah, you know, I mean, totally. I think Nathan was really, you know, instrumental in rehearsals. We were figuring out what the feel of each song was going to be, and mm. and, um, and and how parts were going to get assigned, even because we were reassigning we were reassigning vocal parts as we went along, and um, so he was, you know, sort of instrumental in the in the in the building of the musical vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And and originally, uh, I believe Oklahoma had 28 musicians, and right. you right. have seven? <laughs> exactly. How did, how did you manage that? That's a question for Daniel Kluger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a really, I, I admit when I first came on, you know, I knew that it was kind of a, you know, the, the big terms I had were kind of folk music, Oklahoma, and, and in my mind, I admit I was, um, I, I foresaw a world, and admittedly, kind of where I think Kluger, Daniel Kluger, I keep, it's fine to call him Kluger, uh, <laughs> he's a genius in these ways that I was like, oh, this is going to be kind of a simplified, like, oh yeah, guitar and bass playing kind of like, not necessarily dumbed down, but certainly kind of folkified version of these songs, and, and, and Daniel Kluger had a much different, much more meticulous idea, which I think is what really makes another thing that makes it so good that none of it is just like the text none of it has really changed even i think he took these original um robert russell bennett orchestrations from the 40s that were for a big orchestra and had winds and brass and strings and harps and timpani and all manner of things and really um you know surgically and like carefully took really distilled them to our instrumentation and created these parts that are really um uh, in certain moments very idiomatic to bluegrass music and we're and we're you know, banjos sounds like a banjo and a blue, bluegrass band, but a lot of the times also having the banjo player be the bassoon player or be the clarinet player and these really like specific lines that aren't necessarily idiomatic initially to the instruments, but I think then kind of uh, through all of us and the band working together kind of made them fit the instrumentation and fit the room and everything. So. And you can hear our cast recording on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever Indeed. you like. Yes. <laughs> go right now. Um, I, I would love for you to talk for a minute about the instrument of hope because that is such a, a powerful thing that you guys did. Absolutely. And that, I feel like that I was Eva along with Level Forward, am I correct? Mm -hmm. um, this amazing instrument that was uh, sprang out of the, the students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland where the Parkland shooting happened, teamed up with a local brass technician who's actually my brass repair guy, Josh Landris. Beautiful guy, beautiful brass shop. Uh, built an instrument that, that was made. Parts that were made from melted down bullet casings, and I believe the the number of, of AK-17 casings that represent the number of deaths from that shooting. Um, and they have uh, the it's called Shine MSD, uh, and they've taken this instrument through numerous performing artists and bands. And I know I saw a thing in New York where all like a, a, a thirty or forty trumpet players in the New York studio scene got together and recorded um, this amazing. A song using the instrument and their own trumpets. Um, so we were, I believe, the first Broadway show to feature it. After our show, we did a little arrangement of Out of My Dreams. Um, I came up, I'm a 
for better or for worse, play a lot of different instruments, trumpet being one of them. So we did an arrangement after the show. It, it was really, um, I don't know, you do these shows, you do eight a week, and you know stuff's coming up, and you know, oh, we're going to do this, and it's all really such great stuff, but... I feel like Mary gave a speech before we did it. And well, I just started crying. Yeah, like, you know, two lines stuff. into the speech, and there were Stone, there were Marjorie Stoneman people yeah. in the audience, and it was very moving. And I think there's such um, a contrast too yeah. between hearing a three-hour show where all the instruments are stringed instruments and an accordion, mm. and then you have this powerful bellowing trumpet. Mm. And I think it just like knocked everybody off of their feet, yeah, and they were special. conditioned to hear one type of sound. And then they heard this like grand, fill the room sort of undeniable, uh, blunt instrument. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. And Mary, I think your speech and then your uh, trumpet performance—it's online. Yeah, apparently so they filmed go, it. So go, go and listen to this. You, yeah. you will be changed. Your entire—you will be changed. Yeah, it was uh, beautiful. I would imagine, just for all of you, that there are audiences that come into the theater and they are. They've read about it, or they 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 they've heard, you know, just that this is not your your old traditional <laughs> Oklahoma, and that there are audience members who have they're just they saw Oklahoma, they're going to buy a ticket. And are you aware of like all sorts of different audience experiences that are happening in that space? Very much so. Yeah, yeah they're lit the entire time, so we see all six hundred faces every night. Yeah. And it's really indiscernible to know what people are thinking. You think somebody hates something and they're stone-faced and then they, you realize they've been sitting there thinking about it for three hours yeah. and they can't tell you, can't wait to tell you what they think about how profound it was to them. And, you know, I saw them during the audience and I thought they were hating it the entire time. So you never know. We've had a fair, we have a fair amount of people who at the last, in the last Oklahoma, after the trial scene and after all the violence, um, we sing Oklahoma and they clap along. And um, it's a little uh, weird because they've just witnessed something really uh, intense and violent and, and then they clap along like it's a happy thing. And I've actually had twice in the autograph line, young people say to me, do they do that all the time? And and I've said some some people do, yeah. And they find it they found it really weird. Um, it's really an interesting dichotomy because the young people seem it really resonates with them. And then sometimes the older people want their Oklahoma the way they want their Oklahoma. They don't want us. They don't want to take in anything that's um, too brutal. So. And that's how I define the way people live in this country and yeah. consume yeah. what happens. Like sometimes they want to. <clears throat> give in to the pain and to the anxiety and to the upset that is the reality. And then some people want to smile and clap mm -hmm. and not see it. And that's America. So if that's what's happening in the encore, that's okay because that's real life. Thanks so much for listening to part one of our look inside the creation of the Tony winning revival of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma. There's so much more. So please join us for part two. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org, because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.